All right, guys, really excited to welcome Connor Boyack back to the show. Um, this is a really accomplished guy and a perfect person for me to talk to. So the fact that he's taken his time to speak to me a second time is really an honor. Connor, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, man, absolutely. I want to ask you, what do you call yourself? Are you the CEO of a think tank? Is that your title? Is it in your mind? <laughs> Uh, depend, depends on the day. Yeah, no, I, I don't know what to call myself. I'm I'm the president uh, of a you know nonprofit. I'm the head of a think tank. I'm a full time freedom fighter. Mm. Uh, my my business card uh, kind of changes depending on my daily preference, I suppose. Yeah, but we know you're a very hard worker. You care a lot. There's a lot of passion, right? Isn't that? It just started as a passion, right? For the love of country. Yeah, a lot of fire in the belly, uh, wanted to find a way to get involved, uh, struggled for a while, kind of bouncing around a few other organizations, trying to find my home and, and who I could work with. Wasn't really satisfied with any of the groups out there and had my own vision. So I started off building my own and haven't looked back since. Yeah, amazing. So I just was scrolling your social media and we were talking before we hit record and you've been traveling a lot, working your tail off, very busy. I'm curious, what's the biggest crowd you've spoken to? Because I saw a picture of you addressing these crowds. Is that a newer aspect of your life? Uh, how long have you been speaking to crowds? Do you like it? Oh, yeah. I'm no, I, I love it. I, I really enjoy being up on stage. I've, I've dabbled in speaking over the past, I'd say, four to six years. But it's really taken off, I'd say, in the past two um, especially with like paid speaking gigs and people wanting me to come to their events. So, you know, crowds between 500 or 1500 typically. And, uh, a lot of it is, you know, homeschoolers or parenting or educators, uh, just because my, I think largest platform has come through our Tuttle twins books, which we talked about last time and, you know, teaching kids about entrepreneurship and freedom and, and, you know, personal responsibility. And so I've, I've, I guess, developed a, a following, if you will, and that's opened up some of these opportunities. So just in a couple of days after we're recording this, I'm heading to Ohio to speak at a conference there. And, and yeah, I, I enjoy it. I love, like I started this whole thing a decade ago because I wanted to be able to reach and teach people and I wanted to change hearts and minds. And so Public speaking is a fun aspect of this, uh, especially just because you can connect directly with folks, talk to them after, answer their questions, learn their stories. And it's just something I really enjoy. Right. It's got to be a fulfilling part of, of the process. I just want to say congratulations to you. Um, it must feel great. You set out with a goal and you're doing it and you're succeeding. It's, it's just I'm happy for you. I, I appreciate that. And it's good, I think, for me to hear words like that sometimes, because folks, when you're when you're like in the driver's seat, if you will, when you're running this organization, sometimes you often focus on what you've not yet achieved. Right. Oh, I'm falling behind here or I got to do that. Or um, there's this great business coach named Dan Sullivan. He runs a company called Strategic Coach, which I'm a member of. And I highly recommend for any entrepreneurs and business owners out there. And he has this concept called the gap in the game that so often we live in a gap. We look at what we lack. We compare ourselves to other people. I should be better. I should be further down the path. Wow. And so he talks about the importance of living in the game, which is looking back at yourself and your own progress. Wow, look how far I've come. Look at how much bigger this is. Look how much more I can do. 
and and reframing it and focusing on that positive aspects open up you know creative energies and uh, mm-hmm. positive attitudes that will better enable you to go be productive so I appreciate you saying that that's helping me think in the game and like yeah okay I have you know done some good things that has been fun because so oh, often yeah. I feel like we often get trapped in the gap and we're focused on what we lack. Well, thanks for sharing that insight. That's a brilliant way to look at life. Um, just that alone is super valuable. So I'll, I got to check that. I mean, we should all check that guy out if, if you're an entrepreneur and you're welcome. Um, yeah, no, for sure. So you're hard at work as always. And the latest effort is mediocrity. Let me get the subtitle. 40, 40 ways government schools are failing today's students. So is it fair to say that this is this book that's coming out, what, in two couple of days, five days? Yeah, April 26th. Oh, 26th. Okay, so a couple, two weeks. Very exciting. Is it fair to say this is a continuation of your bread and butter? What's become your bread and butter? I, w- I would say in a way, uh, a lot of my bread and butter has really focused on the fact that I believe the rising generation is not being taught the principles of a free society, the founding ideals of America, even looking at civic education, it's all very poor. It's, it's not teaching concepts and values and philosophies. It's just getting kids to memorize, fa- you know, facts, n- names, dates, things like that. So I, I, I think I'm a very outspoken in my criticisms of our modern education system. I wrote a book years ago called Passion Driven Education about, you know, ways to better inspire kids to love learning. So, yes, this is I, I think it is fair to say this is an extension uh, of that past work. This particular book, however, has a more uh, specific focus. And that is, the, I mentioned April 26th. That's when we're publishing the book. That date is important. And we chose that date for a reason. April 26th of this year, when we're recording this, 2023, will be the 40th anniversary of when a report came out called A Nation at Risk. And the Reagan administration published this. It was the conclusion of an 18-month study where they went across the country talking to teachers and parents and students and trying to assess how the public education system in America was doing. 18 months later, they produced this report on April 26th. And part of the report says that America is being threatened with a rising tide of mediocrity that threatens to overwhelm America's educational foundations. And that if a foreign government had attempted to impose on America the very mediocre educational system that we have today, back in 1983, we might well have viewed it, they said, as an act of war. As it stands, we've allowed this to happen to ourselves. That was 40 years ago. So when I share this story, you know, my speaking engagements and elsewhere, I say, anyone want to like raise their hand and and assert that things are better than they were, you know, 40 years ago? And, and no one today right. has taken me uh, up on uh, up on that offer. So the book, mm-hmm. Mediocrity, the whole point is, hey, 40 years later, let's assess how is this rising tide of mediocrity uh, doing? Has it risen? Has it receded? And so the book makes the mm-hmm. case that the tide has risen. More kids are drowning underneath this mediocrity, and it causes our society, our country, some significant problems. Wow, amazing! What about prayer? What 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 role does prayer and God play in that discussion, if any? In school or in general? In school, and the concept of the Pledge of Allegiance. Do you touch upon those kind of surface issues at all? 
That's an interesting question. Uh, no, the book doesn't talk about those. I guess my argument would be that those don't really factor into educational attainment. Um, so I know many parents want that to happen. Uh, they, they want their kids being exposed to those things. But I would say a basic contention of the, the book is maybe one, one layer above that. And that is parents who have these particular religious, cultural, political uh, you know, desires or preferences find themselves having to operate in a, a, a government system. These are government schools and you therefore have to represent everybody and you have to be neutral and you have to, uh, you know, respect uh, other people's choices. You have to uh, not endorse any, you know, particular, uh, you know, certainly religion or practice or whatever. And so it's like the parents who really want this should not be expecting of a government school to be, you know, instituting prayer. I don't think it's like, if that's important, you take them to, a, you know, a Catholic school or a Jewish school or an evangelical or a, you know, whatever uh, homeschool, if you want, like, you know, as homeschoolers, we pray all the time with our kids. Mm. Uh, and, and that's great. I just don't think that government schools are necessarily the venue for that. And to the extent that we think that they should, that they should, that they we want to shape the culture. They need to be saying the pledge. They need to be you know, mm. praying. I don't believe that government schools should be responsible for shaping culture. I believe that's up mm. to the family. I believe that's up to churches, community, whatever. Schools, I think, should just be about educating kids, uh, focusing on the basics, and leaving the rest to families and the community, rather than using this government political process through these, these schools to try and shape culture. I just don't know that that's the right fit. Yeah, fair enough. And I definitely want to come back to the culture conversation, the culture war. We touched upon it briefly last time we spoke, but I want to diagnose that a little bit more with you. But before, my question is, if the book's ultimate, I'm sure the book is chock full of amazing insights as to why the tide has risen and why more kids are drowning in this mediocrity, the sea of mediocrity in education. I guess my question is, does the book then conclude that X, Y, and Z should be changed in schools or that we should shut the public schools down? Where does it ultimately that's an important, lead? Yeah, that's an important question. And can and you explain to me, and can you kind of explain to me what an alternative system might look like to public schools? On, in yeah, US? sure. No, this is a, these are uh, tantalizing discussions and I think a really on-point question. The, the book itself, we say right at the outset, look, you know, we have our, our preferences, uh, and we have our ideas about what solutions are, but that's not the point of this book. The sole purpose of this book is to wake parents up to the many problems happening in our schools. And we're talking about financial problems where taxpayers are wasting tons of money, academic problems where these kids are basically, you know, turning out to be ignorant, illiterate, uh, you know, kids who can't understand basic, you know, questions uh, despite graduating, cultural issues, all the gender wars, teachers pushing propaganda and so forth. So the book is like, hey, parents, um, you may think that I went to public school and I turned out fine, you know, 20 years, 30 years ago, but things are different today. And so let's catalog all the many problems so that we can have a very, very frank discussion about how things look today, what what the state of the, the mm -hmm. system is today. What you do with that information is up to you. You may choose to pull your kids out and go to private school. You may choose to get more involved and run for school board and try and you know change things from within. You may choose to be a teacher's assistant and be in the classroom so you can better monitor things. You may 
pull your kids out and homeschool them. That's awesome. Whatever, whatever you do, we just want you to be more intentional, recognizing that these problems exist. Now, to answer your broader question and, and the tantalizing one, what I believe to be the right path forward is I don't think that the government should be in the education business. When you look at something like welfare, right? The government doesn't operate grocery stores. It doesn't own production plants and farms and everything in order to provide uh, nourishment to poor people who otherwise would go hungry. The government has chosen to allocate funding for those things. And those individuals can go to a variety of private institutions and spend the money how they deem best for their particular circumstances. And we're completely okay with this. Uh, and this happens with all kinds of stuff. It happens even with like Pell Grants and other educational things where kids can uh, take these this, this government funding, if you will, and they can choose to go to whatever institution they want. I believe that K to 12 education needs to be separated from the government. If taxpayers, if we as a society wanna say, hey, we still want to invest in the rising generation because we don't want kids falling behind. We don't want you know kids from poor families or low-income communities being neglected. Awesome, great. Take the money and provide them as scholarships so that the kids can go to any number of schools because competition always lowers prices and increases quality. Monopolies, by contrast, always increase costs while decreasing the quality. And what we have today is a pseudo monopoly in the education industry. So I think we need to get the government out of being a provider. I think we need to open up a marketplace of providers, private schools, micro schools, tutors, you know, all kinds of different schooling options. Mm -hmm. And then families should be able to allocate that taxpayer investment to go to whatever school they want so that there's choice and so that there's a bit of pr competitive pressure uh, we complain all the time about, you know, bad teacher here, bad school here, here failing school district there. But right. the incentives in the government school system are completely out of whack in, in the sense that if there's a failing school, what do they say will fix it? More money. Throwing more money. Oh, it's just a lack of resources. If only we could hire these 83 more administrators, things would improve. It's always about more money. In, in what world, apart from government schools, is an institution rewarded with more, well, I guess banks too, right? <laughs> bank bailouts. When they fail, Just they a get a couple minor too. sectors. <laughs> exactly. You know, but it, but we recognize that this is problematic. We're, we're incentivizing, uh, you know, bad decisions. It creates moral hazard. And, uh, and so I feel like things would substantially improve if the government was no longer the provider of education, but just the facilitator of it. Uh, still collect all the taxes and spend all the taxes you want, but let's leverage the competitive benefits that you get from a, a wide marketplace, just like we have all kinds of supermarkets and Walmarts and everywhere where people can go with their food stamps and EBT. Let's do the same with education. I think that would drastically reduce costs, increase quality, and create far more opportunities rather than, especially in like low-income communities where these kids are just trapped in failing schools and, mm -hmm. and doing so poorly, like those right. are the kids we got to rescue. Those are the wow. kids who need more options. And I think a system such as I described would, would be far superior in, in taking us there. Well, that is amazing. And I'm so glad you ended with tying it into the most needy because that is what it's, you know, what the, what the focus probably, you know, should be on, uh, you know what I mean? Not solely, but yeah, you know, I'm thinking sold, you know, I'm sold. I mean, Right there, 
I can endorse that and get behind that. It makes all the sense in the world. And I wrote down as a note, even though, as you said earlier, my school experience was okay. Like that part of me that says, no, I mean, public school can't be that bad. And okay, now they're teaching a little bit about trans issues and gender ideology, as I, sh I should say. But I suppose I have to pick up your book to find out just how bad it is. And just how different well, and as, as concerned as I am, Brian, about those issues, I almost consider them to be a little bit of whack-a-mole. What I mean by that is right now it's the gender wars, you know, uh, before that it was sex education, you know, last year it was critical race theory, it's common core, it's, you know, whatever, right? And th there's all these little issues that pop up that attract everyone's attention and ire and we scream about it and nothing really happens, but then the next thing happens. And so we shift our ire over there. I'm more interested in the fundamental problems, the systemic problems that are, aren't this kind of whack-a-mole go Fair up Fair enough, down. but those whack-a-mole categories, I would you agree that they are real and present in schools? Well, 100%. But I, I would say to me, this is kind of an 80-20 thing, right? 20%, we have all these like whack-a-mole type of concerning issues that parents are very, you know, concerned about and, and worried about. And so I'd say maybe that's 20%. The 80% in my mind is the the system itself and how it purports to provide academic instruction and educational proficiency. So a lot of the book is focused on various aspects of how schools are structured, how curriculum is developed, mm -hmm. why uh, are the testing methodologies that we use are horrible, right? It's just teaching to the test, kids raising their hands saying, why do I need to learn this? Oh, it'll be on the test, right? Like we're, we're not inspiring people to learn. We're not honoring kids' curiosity and helping them learn what matters to them. We're forcing them to adapt to a one-size-fits-all curriculum. So most of the book focuses on the fact, and as did the report 40 years ago, on the fact that just the foundational educational methodologies, the pedagogy that our schools are using today mm -hmm. are, is just mediocre. I mean, compared to other countries, we're not even in the top 10 of, of, of other countries with That's their awful. educational proficiency. Really it is shameful. Yeah, it really is. So interesting, 80-20 concept there. So the core, yeah, so the book, I guess, goes into the meat of what that 80% is. Fair enough. The culture war, which I'm more familiar with, and I don't mean to overly dwell on it, but, you know, as I've alluded to, I, I studied it not too long ago in law school, and I found it to be incredibly controversial. And there's a lot to that as well. If the culture war is only 20% then, and it's used to distract us from the real issues in education and more broadly, what are, what are some of the other real issues? We talked about the Federal Reserve last time, education being a disaster. Where else are we in need of a clarity in this country? Well, I, I think probably one of the biggest battlefields uh, answering your, your question about where our focus should be or what we should be paying attention to. I think one of the most important battlefields is history, right? Because what what is the point of history? Is it that you can regurgitate these factoids about things that happened hundreds of years ago to impress people at a you know party or answer a quiz? Like, is that the the point of learning all this? I don't think so. I think the point of history, the true essence of history is to help us understand who we are and to help us better formulate ideas for what we should 
do moving forward, right? It's the, the quote, those who don't learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. And so take, take a contrasting example. Let's start with the 1619 Project. So here's an effort to reframe America's history, that its roots are not in the 1700s with the so-called founding fathers, but in fact, America's story, they say, really begins in 1619 with the importation of slaves from Africa and the beginning of chattel slavery here in the colonies. And so the idea behind the 1619 Project is that by reframing America's past as having that foundation we can differently interpret the present. We can modify things right now and more importantly, modify the direction we go in the future so that we can talk about things like reparations, right? Because if the foundation is rotten and if we built this white supremacy uh, you know, structure on top of this rotten foundation, then the structure has to get torn down and we have to you know, honor the, the stolen lands and the, all the black ancestors and all the things. And right. it totally changes who we are, who we understand ourselves to be today right. and what we're going to do in the future. By contrast, if you say, as we do with the Tuttle Twins, when we did our we did an American history book last year and uh, and we chose to tell America's story as starting in the 1200s. Well, that, well, that's crazy. No one talks about the 1200s. Yeah. What was going on then? The 1200s is when you had Marco Polo and the Silk Road. You had all these people trading and buying and selling and this explosion of commerce which led Marco Polo and other explorers to travel to faraway lands in search of spices and treasure and other things to bring back to the Silk Road to uh, generate wealth, to improve their lives. Well, that exploration by these explorers led to colonization and the colonization consequently led to America. And so we prefer to tell America's story as having its foundations in the quest for human betterment. You can talk in centuries later about the quest for religious freedom as being part of that, as it was for many people. But even centuries before, you have people who are trying to get out of this, this uh, you know, peasantry, right? And being serfs and, and being in poverty. And so they're buying and selling, trading, improving, growing. And, and all of that spills over eventually into America. I like that framing because it helps me better, better understand my world today, that so many of us are going about our jobs. I mean, you're a construction manager. You're helping create, you know, buildings for other people who are going to be able to inhabit them for their, you know, work to go then do amazing things and serve other people and, and all the rest. And, and so commerce, entrepreneurship, economics is really just about humans interacting with one another and buying and selling and mutually improving our lives. And being I like productive, not being uh, on the sideline of your own life. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then we can better uh, direct our future. We can say, well, just like those people tried to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, tried to build something of their life, I can do that too. I can learn from their example. And, and so to me, history is the battlefield because if we don't understand our past uh, in an authentic, honest, uh, and positive perspective, I, I would say, because we can dwell on all the warts and bumps and bruises all we want. But ultimately, I don't think that serves us well for moving forward. We, we should honor it. We should recognize it. We shouldn't bury it. We should recognize that slavery was a horrible stain, not just on America, but the whole world. Like we were not an anomaly in that regard at all. And so we can honor the past. We can acknowledge all the problems. But I don't think it's instructive for us to self-shame, to to try and, and you know, create problems. So history to me is the battlefield. And, and that's why I'm so passionate about this topic because I feel like in the schools, it's just 
like I hated learning history because in school because it was all just memorization without context. Uh, no one ever talked to me about learning from history. It was always learning about the past, hmm. uh, not like how to draw lessons, right. extract lessons from it to better serve your future. Right. No one talked about it in that way. I would have loved to have yeah, kind of that, that would have thought been, about it that way. That would have been a great way to, to frame it. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for playing in this culture war theme with me. I do think it's very important for the reasons you just outlined. And I understand that, or I believe that your book is, your most recent book that we're talking about, Mediocrity, is much more than that. In fact, it might not even touch upon the cultural war stuff at all. So I appreciate you kind of playing in the field that I'm more familiar with. And yeah, I think I think that's right. At the end of the day, how do you feel about America? And you can always and should want, to, you know, it is your right as a citizen to request, demand, expect change in your government. But like we were talking about last time, people often focus on the things they really can't change, like the federal government, when they should maybe focus on local and state and, and themselves. So this spirit of individualism, yeah, it draws me to libertarianism, draws me away from certainly what the Democratic Party is today. Even I can recognize that they've shifted in the last 5, 10, 15 years into something much more authoritarian, if you will, not that the right doesn't have their fair share of authoritarian right. strains as well but yeah. um yeah libertarian very attractive to me yeah so my dad is a important person in my life and he's very passionate they're independent guy but very him and his brothers very into you know like fdr progressives you know just making sure the poor are taken care of and okay you got to tax the rich a little more so do it you know like whatever sure they're they're you know they're artists you know, in the best sense. I mean, and so there's I always think about this dynamic between artists at heart and the concept of America. It's just there's something there. But um, one of my uncles is a, is a great guy. He's got a podcast a radio show called The Zero Hour. And he was the third hire on Bernie Sanders uh, 2016 campaign for president. So mm -hmm. uh, Richard Escow is a re really influential thought leader on the progressive side. It's, it's Interesting. What do you say to those guys who say, look, I'm with you on I don't want to be lied to. And they could probably go along and say, hey, you got a better idea to improve education. Let's do it. But what do you say as a libertarian to their comments about helping poor people? Oh, yeah. Make, what do you say? Absolutely. Uh, well, to me like that, if there is a purpose for government, you know, the so-called social safety net, it is to, uh, to, to be able to be in a position to help people who are otherwise ultimately going to be uh, neglected and and homeless and so forth. I, th I think there's a compelling argument there. To me, it's ultimately a question, though, about who can best provide those services. If you go back uh, a century, century and a half, uh, and even before then, early America was full of what uh, Alexis de Tocqueville called mediating institutions. Here's a guy who came from Europe he comes to early America, he's blown away at how there's all these associations and organizations of mutual aid and support where people are taking care of one another. And he's, he's fascinated because in Europe, he says, by contrast, anytime someone has you know, a need, they raise their hand and ask a minister for help. They ask some politician. They always turn to the government mm -hmm. and say, help me. And so you have Redress this huge government. Yeah, huge government, huge taxes, and and you lose the connection between people. When I when I give charity to my you know neighbor to my and the uh, innovation sibling, and efficiency, 
Well, it's efficiency, but it's also relationship building. When I am charitable to others, they're they're accountable to me because they they want to do right by me. I'm a person in their life. They feel grateful to me. I see the benefit my work has been able to allow me to have on someone else. It it it's a it fosters amazing. So just another reason to think that big government, along with technology, is really distancing us from each other. Precisely. When someone collects a welfare check, when it just goes in their bank account, they have no idea who the so-called giver is. They have no accountability to them. There's no incentive to use the money efficiently. Uh, there, there's no relationship being built. There's an entitlement mentality by contrast. Right. And, and so to me, here comes the government. We, we create the welfare state, all these government programs. And what happened? All the private associations in America, what were called the mutual aid societies, these these I mean, there were there were groups all over the place where you could you know, there were ethnic groups where if you were Irish, there'd be an Irish mutual aid society or if you were from Germany, there would be a German one or what, like all these people were taking care of one another. They would provide health insurance, life insurance, orphan care, elderly care. Uh, and, and everyone was doing this and chipping in and all helping out. So in comes the welfare state. They set up all these government programs and suddenly people are like, well, why am I going to contribute to this organization if I'm already being taxed? Mm -hmm. And then my taxes supposedly will you know, help the poor and help me if I ever get into financial straits. It completely put these mutual aid societies out of business, mm -hmm. like almost overnight. And so to me, I want to help poor people and I want poor people to be helped. But I don't think that the current model is effective. I think it encourages slothfulness for many people. It increases entitlement mentality. I believe that there's a way to do it while being efficient, effective, and fostering those you know, relationships. Imagine if people could direct their charity dollars, uh, just like we were talking earlier about your education dollars and directing it to the school that you want for your kid. What if the government's like, look, everyone's going to pay X amount of tax that's going to go to poor people, right? And you get to effectively vote on which institutions that you would prefer your money to go to. Suddenly, these organizations that help the homeless or, you know, food shelf pantries and, and so forth would have to basically demonstrate publicly like, hey, here's how we are efficient with your dollars. We're good stewards. Here's our metrics of how many people we've helped. Here are the programs we have in place to actually get these people on you know, their own two feet rather than being forever dependent on us. And, and again, I think that that competitive pressure would improve things and, and introduce efficiencies that right now in the welfare state, we simply don't have. So, so talking to your uncle, talking to your dad, what I would ultimately say is I share your goals. I, I think we have a good, solid, common ground of wanting to help the poor. I just think if you contrast early America versus modern America, you'd find a far cheaper, far more effective and far more social, societally beneficial uh, method of helping the poor and the modern welfare state has increased disconnection and dependency. Sure, it's helping people, but it's also creating some harms that I think can be mitigated if we just restructured how we do charity care. Yeah, fantastic. And thank you for, for addressing that question. Appreciate that. Um, do you want to, since we're running against the clock, do you want to do a couple quick hits? Let's do it. All right. Are you as impressed as I am with Vivek's campaign so far? Oh, I, I, I like Vivek, that he's, excuse me, Vivek. Yeah, I don't know how you, how you even pronounce his name, but I follow him on Twitter. And, and I like that he's kind of just doing this man of the people stuff. He's recording little selfie videos and and just kind of speaking direct and sharing his thoughts. I think that's, you know, effective. I think it's authentic. Um, I I don't know. I, I don't frankly know a lot about his policy positions. 
but I do want to see a lot of people running uh, on the Democrat ticket too. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm intrigued that uh, what's his name, Robert F. Kennedy. Well, it's Jr. funny. Is... I have what well, this bullet point is Vivek slash RFK. Yeah, and I was going to say either or. So there you go. Yeah, there you go. I, I think we need debate. I think we need debate. I think we need to hold incumbents accountable. I think they. I think every politician in power deserves a challenger to keep them honest and to, uh, you know, make mm-hmm. them earn <laughs> their right. their right. victory rather than just coast into it. Well. Uh... With that said, speaking of earning your victories, after this time to process, what do you think about Trump's post-election loss behavior? His, you know, the con- the fact that people will say, oh, 60 something courts dismissed it. But yeah, only two of them tried, you know, the substance, you know, wasn't pre- dismissed procedurally. So what is your reaction to how he's behaved after his loss, whether his loss was legitimate, so and so? I, I haven't looked closely in all the voter fraud claims. I'm I'm likely to think that there's probably far more smoke than fire there. What I do find interesting, though, looking at his post-election behavior is the contrast between how he's behaving now and how he was behaving on the early campaign trail when he ran, first ran. When he first ran, he was very critical of the system. He was critical of the so-called deep state. He was making fun of all the elite uh, and, and so he attracted a lot of attention because he was identifying what many of us perceive to be poor systemic problems. By contrast, right now, it's all about Trump. Everything Trump is doing is about Trump. It's about I was defrauded. I was, you know, uh, very sad uh, because the, he's quite an effective political figure in his way. Right. It is sad. And it's I think he's sad. playing his cards poorly. I think it's not good strategy. No one ultimately cares about Trump. It's what Trump stood right. for and, and can do. And so I think by him focusing on this woe is me approach, he's, he's going to be eroding a lot of his base for support. Uh, what, what happens with that remains to be seen. The, the guy can turn things around quickly, I feel like. So uh, he's, he's very uh, advantageous yeah, you, and you, you don't want to opportunistic. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> wow. Just, just a fat. Is he not a fascinating character? My goodness. You're going to have to write a book on him. all right my friend well that's enough for this time i can't thank you enough it means a lot to me i think you're you know i don't want to be over the top i think you're a special guy and uh, it's great to have connected with you well i appreciate our discussions and uh you asked really insightful questions that i hope your listeners will ponder and and obviously why you do this podcast and why i do what i do is really to you know, influence others and and walk through our own processes of how we're trying to understand the world. And so I hope all the listeners out there have appreciated this. And for anyone who's curious about the mediocrity book we talked about, uh, you can head on to Amazon and and it's uh, launched in April 26th. Super cool. You know, final thought, Vivek's one of his campaign, his campaign theme is that we're a nation in search for identity. And of course, my podcast is what it is. And yeah. what you're doing is you're you're helping you're helping people spread a message that you're passionate about, you believe in. It's it's a beautiful thing, and yeah, hopefully we're all gaining something from this. Be the change you want to see, right? Absolutely. Thanks okay. again, Brian. Thank you very much. Take care.